Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by the new voice-activated sync featuring hands-free calling, music and podcast search, along with turn-by-turn navigation. Available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. For more details, visit SyncMyRidePodcast.com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This Week on Twip, internships, slave labor, Co-host Sarah France joins the fray in an interview with nature photographer Moose Peterson. All that and more on episode number 120 of This Week in Photography. And welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, we've got a couple of familiar faces. Uh, first up is Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. Hello. How are you doing you over doing there? Today? I'm doing great. The rain has finally stopped in California, or at least Southern California, and we're back to sunshine. You know, I kind of like the rain. I, I did a little road trip this weekend and uh, drove down the coast a little bit, and it's actually fun taking photos in the rain. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Everything, that's, that's why we always wet down movie sets whenever uh, we're shooting outdoors. It just looks better. Yeah, it looks cleaner. The air is crisper. It's just nice. I agree with that. Yep. But then when, that, when the roof starts to leak, it's not as much fun. <laughs> And also on the show, as you may have guessed by that little giggle, uh, is Miss Sarah France joining us again. Hey, Sarah. Hi. How's how are you? Are you down in San Diego today? Yes, I am in San Diego today. How's the weather down there? Is it good? Uh yeah. It it rained pretty much all weekend, but um, we got clear skies just in time for my shoot yesterday, and it's been nice ever since. So awesome. And we're gonna yeah. try to get we're gonna try to get Aaron Mailer on the show as well, but uh, he's having or we or somebody between us and him are having technical difficulties. So we'll try to get him on. Uh, Sarah, what uh, you haven't been on the show for a while? What have you been up to for the last couple months? I know. Well, I had my busiest part of our wedding season um, in the last part of the year this year. So um, we were, I even had probably, I had three weddings in one weekend, which I've never done before. So that was crazy. Um, (laughs) Just the usual, you know, we're, we're shipping out a ton of those aperture training DVDs, which is great. And I've just been working on a few other little projects on the side in the middle of busy wedding season, but we're excited for it to slow down a little bit now. Very cool. Yeah. And Ron, what, you, what have you been up to? What's your uh, what's been keeping you busy down there? A whole lot of nothing. <laughs> I don't like you. <laughs> Come I've on, you've been shooting. House, you've been you uh, just walking around barefoot on the beach, right? Uh, I do that. I repaired the fence the other day. Um, you know, I've actually been organizing some photos, which has been sort of a, a while coming. There was a lot of stuff backed up, so I've been knee deep and trying to pick favorites and post stuff to Flickr and all that kind of stuff. Oh, the life of a retiree. Wow. Yeah, well, I don't know about a retiree, but uh, <laughs> the life of leisure. Yeah, I guess it sounds better than unemployed, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so you're not you're not sitting on the street corner with a cardboard sign, so you're doing okay. Technically, I am unemployed by choice, so I'm not going to complain too much. There you go. Gainfully unemployed. Exactly. All right, a quick nod to our sponsor. Uh, this Week in Photography is brought to you by the new voice-activated sync in your Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. 
The sync listens to your voice, so without using your hands, you can make calls on your mobile phone, find and play music and podcasts. You can get turn-by-turn navigation and even access to traffic, real-time traffic and weather. And that's all from the new hands-free sync. If you'd like to get more details on that, head over to SyncMyRidePodcast.com. First, let's, uh, let's jump into some of the key news. You know, one thing that uh, that I figured we'd focus the show on today, uh, we get a lot of mail about this and a lot of a lot of positive and negative. Um, I wouldn't say so much negative, but just a lot of questions around the idea of internships. So I wanted to I thought we'd just use this as a group discussion to, to find out where you guys stand. Now, in the in uh, one of the articles that we were circulating around before the show is, uh, you know, actually, I'll let I'll let Ron tell us about this article. Um, because I, I have some pretty, pretty strong feelings about this and I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, channel Alex Lindsay cause I know he has feelings about this as well. And he's not on the show. So Ron, tell us about this article. Are, are you going to channel, uh, channel him pro or con? I mean, the article is a, uh, I don't know in front of me, but a, a, a posting for an unpaid internship for a, uh, very well-known photographer, James Nockway. Um, looks like it's mostly a post-production kind of job. Uh, you know, reasonably uh, decent requirements for what you need to know in terms of technical skills and all that. But I guess the big issue here, of course, is that they are looking for an unpaid intern. Um, and I know a lot of people get offended by this. I know where I stand on it, which is pretty much when you're starting out. And even you know these days, I don't necessarily have a problem working for free as, as long as there's sort of a very clear understanding of what is going on and what's about it. In this particular case, uh, James Nockway, I, you know, I'd probably pay him to work for him. So uh, I don't particularly have a problem with this. I mean, this is one of the most award-winning photographers out there. And at some level, you know, there's a, there's a cost on their end to uh, get an intern and, you know, take the chance of somebody not provide, you know, not being uh, up to speed as well. So I don't know. What do you, what do you think? What's your basic take on generally unpaid internships? Well, my, my basic take, I think is, is probably the same as yours as, as yours. I think if it's, if it's an internship where you are, and it's somebody like like James knocked away here. I mean, he's granted. You know, it, it, anybody worth anybody <laughs> that knows anything about photography is going to want to would pay him to uh, just maybe exactly. sit down and have a coffee with him and pick his brain for a while about the things he's done. Um, and I I tend to come on, come in on that that same sort of tangent. I think uh, internships, unpaid internships, are good, but you know. First of all, I think you have to be cognizant of the fact that people still have to eat. So you can't, you know, it's like a, it's a catch-22. You can, you can get this great experience, but at the same time, you have to sustain yourself. So, I, you know, I'm, yeah, and, and, I don't know, and, it's a hard nut to crack here. I mean, yeah. even if it's somebody's famous, I can see like, okay, you're a video guy and you get a chance to get this unpaid internship on the Oprah show. Or something like this. Are you going to say no because I need to make money? No, of course you're going to take it. But then where's the ethics line on the the side of the show itself? You know, just using Oprah as an example because presumably they're making a lot of money and presumably, you know, photographers like uh, like the photographer we're talking about here could pay if he wanted to. So is it is it right not to pay or is it just a sort of a, a rite of passage for the the aspiring photographer to just suck it up for a while to prove that they want to be a real photographer by not taking any pay. Yeah, I, I, a, go ahead, I have a pretty strong opinion on this. I think just because I have um, 
unpaid interns. And uh, I've gone back and forth with it quite a bit myself, just in my own business. But I think that um, one thing I really realized when I was thinking about internship is that I go and pay to go to training. And um, when I got one of my first interns, he was talking with his professor at at college. Um, he was going to school for photography about taking an unpaid internship. And he said, you, you pay to go to school here and we don't pay you to be here. Obviously, you have to figure out how to do it financially for yourself to go to school. So that's um it's even a better deal for you that you're getting you know on the job training and you're not having to pay for it yeah. and of course you're you're paying for it in your time and your service but the education is invaluable so um it really is a great trade off and if somebody doesn't want to do it or can't afford it they they won't do it yeah 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 it's so. it's, it's what were you going to say Ron before well I, I you know i know a lot of people uh get offended about this kind of thing generally uh primarily because you know they are they may be working professionals and they feel like okay here's somebody that is uh, getting somebody to work for them for free as opposed to paying somebody like me to to do it and you know i can i can see their point but at some level i guess i'm enough of a believer in the free market to kind of feel like you know it's it's uh, it's a continuum there and i don't really have a problem with it you know i, I think i think the in a case like this, where it's James Knockway, I mean, I think just about anybody would be willing to do it. So really the question should boil down to something that's a lot more like, you know, some nobody putting out an ad for an uh, unpaid intern. And, you know, do you still feel the same way about that? And I think I kind of still do as long as, I think here's really the primary issue, as long as there's full disclosure, full transparency about what exactly is entailed, what is going on, you know, that it's not something where it's, oh, well, you know, we'll pay you later or it's kind of undetermined you know as long as it's very clear about what exactly is happening what the costs are what the issues are then i think it's fine yeah i agree yeah it's a it's an at will sort of relationship entered entered into with full knowledge from both sides and you know i i tend to agree i I, i'm on the fence but i tend to lean more towards um internships are highly valuable because like sarah was saying it's you know where else you're going to pay for this knowledge one way or another so you might as well pay for it but the the part that still has my my foot in the other side is um the you know the companies that are that these giant companies that are bringing in interns and making money off of the interns but not giving any money or trickling any of that down to the intern you know even if they agreed to it's just you know that's that's the one little sticking point now uh aaron but why, but why is that different why is it different what do you mean well, why is it different if a big company does it versus, uh, you know, a, a well-known photographer? I guess it's the same thing. You know, I'm just saying, you know, the, it, it just stings more if it's like a big company like, I don't know, News Corp or something bringing in interns and getting a lot of work on them, like really good work out of them, and then not paying that intern at all. You know, I guess the same thing if, if you know, if I, me, Mr. Sole Proprietorship, if I hire an intern, I'm presumably making a profit because I'm in business and um, I bring in an intern and I don't pay them. You know, it's it's like Sarah was saying, it's you know, it's a case by case basis and it's a decision that the intern needs to make because, you know, the intern needs to say, well, you know, this education is more important to me than being paid. I'm going to do this for a while to then presumably in the future I will be able to do my own thing, you know, versus I'm not going to do that at all. And I don't need that knowledge that Sarah France was going to give me because she's not going to pay me any money, you know, so 
they're right. they're getting paid in experience and right sir well i think the the best um example you can get from it or or even understanding of it is to ask an intern who worked for me so um my last intern and I've heard from several people goes around talking all about how my, the internship he had with me completely changed his business and his life and got him um, moving a lot quicker in his own business than he ever could have on his own. So okay. I think that um, after an internship, I mean, we're kind of talking about the beginning of an internship, but um, after an internship, if they still feel that it was way worth um, the time and effort that they put in, that really goes to show for internships in general and specifically. I think everybody can set their internships up separate, differently, and some can really set their interns up to succeed. Like, for instance, I hire from my interns. They're kind of like long, extended interviews. So if someone um, I feel like after three months that they should stay in the studio and that I want to hire them, I'll hire them. Or if I feel like it's better for them to go out on their own and, and not work for me, then we'll do that as well. So it's really an evaluation of what's best for the photographer. Yeah, it's really interesting. So uh, we were trying to get Aaron on the line before, and for some reason he's having some video issues, but we have him via audio. So uh, Aaron, I know you've been listening on this this conversation where do you fall in on the uh, the discussion? I don't want to say argument, but discussion around internships, paid and unpaid. I'm um, I'm fully in favor of an unpaid internship as long as it's something that the intern is in a position to handle. Certainly, um, I'll also add as a side note that I ended up getting married as a result of an internship. <laughs> <laughs> so you're totally That's how for I it. Met my wife. <laughs> was it paid or unpaid? <laughs> uh, it was an unpaid internship. Actually, my my wife was my intern many years ago uh, when I was in business and she was in college. Um, we started dating after the internship. We're very clear about that. But uh, you know, many years later, here we are. <laughs> I'm taking applications but, for uh, interns. By the way, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you should put an age limit on that, Ron. I don't think college is going to work for you, hey, Ron. Do not put. Don't be putting out any calls for wives on this week of photography. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no, I, I'm, it's I'm Ron Brinkman on Twitter. As long as the intern's in a good position, you know, financially to be able to handle it, because I do think the knowledge in the right scenario, the knowledge is definitely worth it. And I think the analogy to if you're going to pay for an education, you know, it, it's very similar type of thing. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I I think that you, to be clear, though, there there are a lot of scenarios out there where uh, people do take advantage of this, and I, and I think the. You know, there's some clear lines, but I think it's where it's really hard is this gray area where somebody says, you know, I need an intern, it's an unpaid position, but you'll have the opportunity to do this, this, and this, or, you know, you'll be able to do such and such. Uh, and then when the actual job materializes, it's not the same sort of a scenario. You, know, you just end up, you know, getting coffee or something like that. So, uh, and it's a difficult thing. You know, as as an employer, I've certainly been in situations where I think a job, you know, for a paying job that I think I'm going to hire somebody to do one thing and the job just evolves. And it turns out, you know, for a number of reasons, sometimes the person just isn't capable of what uh, we had hoped they were capable of. But sometimes it's just the job changes or the need changes uh, and you don't, you know, you're not able to put them on this. But, you know, I, and, and I don't even know that there's necessarily that hard and fast a line between uh, a free internship and just a low paying job, because it's really the same sort of scenario, right? You may be taking a pay cut to get a certain type of experience. So, again, I think that the big problem is you've just, you know, as an employee or an intern, you've got to be very 
aware of what's going on and uh you know hopefully try to get some sense of the reputability of the people that you're working for yeah and then just to be clear where these are the the kind of internships that we're talking about here are these highly skilled sort of uh be in the presence of people that have done what you're trying to do internships this isn't uh an internship like you're going to be shuffling papers or you know you're doing something that is sort of repetitive labor you're presumably like sarah your interns they probably learn all kinds of things from you and in in addition to doing the things that you need done around the office but um, presumably they they learn all kinds of photographic techniques on how to deal with customers and shoot and all that correct yeah they do i mean to be honest a lot of times just being in the office and around seeing what i do i mean we're in a very close environment so you can't help but learn all sorts of different things in this environment because you're in it and and that's just how it is so my interns a lot of times are always the ones who come along on shoots with me because that's a really highly intensive education process um and just being on a shoot is really good but uh the first few couple interns that i had i think there's a learning curve on on how to use interns uh, successfully in a business. And I think that's kind of what you're running into when you talk about people who aren't doing this, right? It's just really education of how to have an intern and how to use them properly. And one of the things I learned really quickly was that you can't teach them everything um, in three months because you spend three months doing a three-month seminar, basically, and don't get any work back. So yeah. I stopped having interns for a while because I felt like it wasn't worth the amount of time and effort that I was putting into it, which is kind of an interesting side of it. But, um, uh, no, but really, yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, there is absolutely a cost of getting an inexperienced person into a workflow. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, you, you kind of have to uh, take a, a more experienced person and kind of partner them up and acknowledge the fact that the experienced person is going to you know suffer a, 10% or 20% or whatever decrease in productivity just to sort of help the very junior person along. So it's not like, uh, you know, a lot of times it's not like these people are getting this work done for free. There's a cost associated with that as well. And it's, you know, it's, it's an investment and you're hoping that the person that you've hired uh, will come up to speed and eventually begin pulling their weight. But yeah, I have plenty of situations where I've had very junior employees end up costing more than, uh, than they're worth. Yeah, yeah but, and okay, that's the same like, for interns. Uh, go ahead, Sarah. It's the same for interns. I think there's there is a really high cost associated when I'm the one doing the training. Um, you know, I value my time quite a bit because I could be spending my time doing stuff that's valuable for my business, and instead I'm training somebody. And a lot of times they're trying to have the exact same business that I have in the exact same market. So I'm training somebody who could be competition in the future, which is fine. But if all they do is come in and learn for three months and then leave, that doesn't really um, have any sort of a value to my business if they haven't really learned something that they can repeat and do for me. Now, is that sort of an accepted and acknowledged risk of bringing on interns in the wedding photography space, Eric? Because it seems like, like you said, you're when you bring folks on, they presumably live in the same market that you do, and you're teaching them all of your tricks and techniques, and they're not going to want to be your intern forever. So at some point, they're going to break free of the nest and go hang out their own shingle and be competing with you using your own judo against you. Is that <laughs> Have you seen that? 
<laughs> yeah, I think that's, I mean, that can definitely be something. But to be honest, there's enough business out there for all of us. And I would, um, it still is about the photographer. It's not um, all about the business. That is a big piece of it. But um, you can never quite train them to be you. So they can never, that photographer can never be me. So they can never really be true competition. Yeah. Now, Aaron, uh, how do you go about finding interns when you're not intending on marrying them? <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> to one thing, the point I was going to make uh, as well, in the situation I've been in, and this is outside of photography, this is in my, my world as a network sysadmin, uh, the trick for me is being fair to the interns in the sense of my having a working environment and a schedule where I can involve them and help them actually excel rather than I'm often caught in a situation where I only have time to get done what needs getting done. I mean, the the chaos that drives my work is I have to react to something and I don't always have the opportunity to turn something like that into a teaching situation for the intern. So for me, honestly, in recent years, and again, this is in my work outside photography, I have not been able to take on interns because I just, I can't fit them into the schedule and I can't be fair to them in the process. I mean, it's not going to be something they're going to learn from if I'm kind of running around with my hair on fire. So, you know, I'm hoping that situation is changing over time. But um, And I think that kind of comes back a little bit, too, to the whole un- unpaid intern concept, too, that it's a two-way street and both parties have to play fair in there. The intern has to be in a position to be able to take an unpaid internship, but the person who's leading that internship needs to be in a, in a position to benefit from their presence, but also um, you know, bestow knowledge upon them and making a teaching situation out of it, um, yeah. which I have not been able to. So I, to, to be fair to interns in my own schedule, I haven't been doing that in recent years. Now, Ron, if you're hiring an intern and it's, you know, you're, you're talking about duration and it's not a duration of until death do you part type thing, how long is the average or how long should, should people that are considering becoming interns for photographers anticipate being in that, in that sort of position? Uh, well, I, you know, I don't think you can really generalize it. I, you know, most of the time when I've hired people, it's, it's uh, working at studios and doing visual effects work and that kind of thing. And there's a pretty clear progression of somebody that comes in at the very most junior position and sort of works their way up but we were pretty hesitant to put kind of timelines on it because you know somebody may be superstar and a few months in you're like this this you know gal is kicking ass and it's time to give her more responsibility uh and go ahead and make it move up there i think there's a real danger to try and put a time frame on it because you know at the same time somebody that's not as good will be like well i've been here for six months and then you know you said i was going to move up but Clearly, they're not ready for it. So, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's a timing thing. I think it's a it's a skill set thing that you know you you can probably put some sort of uh, contingency in place for that, or you know some sort of rules in place saying you know if you can manage to get to this level, then we will move you up. But I don't think you can do it time based. Yeah. And one more question on this for for Sarah: How do you go about finding your interns? Is is it a, just a matter of posting an ad on Craigslist, or is it word of mouth, or what? Um, usually they find me, uh, I think pretty much most of them have found me, although I did Twitter once and I got an intern from that. So, um, my intern who currently works with me was a friend of a friend of a friend and he was coming out of college and trying to figure out if he, what kind of photography he wanted to do and wanted to intern for somebody. So he actually moved down to San Diego, um, from Santa Barbara area and um, has been interning and and working three days a week for me and then working um, somewhere else just to make some extra money 
on the side. So that's how he's able to kind of afford it and make it work. Very cool. So if you're I, if anyone out there is interested in in uh, interning for Sarah France, follow her. We on have Twitter. a slot open. <laughs> follow her on Very Twitter. <laughs> exactly. Sarah, I, I just think that's a great point. That you know. The things they don't teach you in college, uh, I think a lot of a lot of universities uh, and various other programs sort of try to give you give you the impression that okay, you go through this, you learn whatever's in the books and take the tests, and then somebody will start offering you jobs, and that may be the case, but it's not always going not always going to be the job you want. Uh, and I think it's really important to understand when you're first starting out that you do have to be extremely proactive, and there's. It makes a lot of sense to find a photographer you really admire and send off an email or even a handwritten letter or something saying, you know, here's what I do. Here's some examples of what I do. And I want to come work for you in any capacity, including potentially unpaid or whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, but, but be aggressive with that. You'd be surprised how often things happen. It's still you know, such a cliche, but it's it's really is about who you know as much as anything and getting into uh, the inner circle of working professionals is probably the best thing you can ever do to get into an industry. It's yeah. so true. I totally agree with you. And I, and I, I really think that the interns that I've had um, would agree with you too. And even, even Josh now is, is fantastic and he's um, going to be a great photographer and he's getting camera gear for Christmas this year. And, and we're directing him in a certain way. And I, you know, sit down and talk to, the um, interns that I have about where they want to take it and what they're learning and what's that's shown them. And um, for him, it's shown him that he actually thinks he doesn't want to have his own photography business, that he wants to work with someone else. So um, that can definitely happen. And what a valuable lesson that is without starting up a photography business and then figuring that out like a year in, uh, that would be crazy. And my last intern is off um, running his own business and doing great now. So oh. uh, everybody gets something different out of it. You know? hey Sarah, how's the, how's the, uh, the wedding photography industry overall, you know, in terms of the, the economy as a whole? For the wedding industry? Yeah. Um, you know, we've seen really that things started to pick up. Like like I was saying, all my weddings were crammed into the last part of the year. For some reason, the first part of the year, I was freaked out and wasn't as much and then our weddings into the last part of the year so we're doing good i mean it seems to be back up up to speed and um and things seem to be happening just kind of um like the economy isn't really affecting people as much anymore and i think it probably depends somewhat on your market um i know probably the mid-range clients who were trying to reach us um in the past just aren't anymore but we also have an associate photographer now um and we're seeing business pick up in that area as well just because of you know of, of what's going on with the recession so yeah cool all right let's move on to uh to another story we spent a lot of time beating that beating the intern to death <laughs> <laughs> no nice. don't beat the intern to death <laughs> the intern story. Um, but uh, time, it's that time of year, actually, for time to collect the best photos of 2009. Aaron, what's the what's the deal there? Uh, this is something time puts together every year. And uh, it was a link I picked up, actually, off a Rob Galbraith site this morning. Um, this is their traditional uh, yearly collection of the best photos. Uh, so best photos of 09 in this case. There's some fantastic stuff in it. appears to be pretty chronological. I mean, it's certainly starting out with, uh, with Obama's inauguration, some dramatic stuff there, and a lot of imagery from, uh, you know, from Afghanistan and Iraq as well. But uh, I really encourage people to see it, and we'll put it in the, uh, in the show notes. 
Cool. Now, what uh, any photo in that group of photos stick out more than any other for you? Um, I'm a little bit partial to the immigration photos, <laughs> personally, having been there and thoroughly enjoyed the event myself, even though I about froze to death. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I haven't even actually been through all of them. There's 48 shots in here. And uh, take your time perusing it when we put it in the show notes. Yep, very cool. And another story in the news today is Nikon has updated their 300mm f2.8 2x teleconverter. Ron, do you know any of the, anything about this uh, this teleconverter, and do you even care? Well, since I'm a Canon shooter, uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> That's what okay. I was thinking. Don't That's be a so hater. Funny. Don't be a hater. I, it's all a hater. light. I just, it's I all have light, no use man. for it. I, you know, you, you give me a, a lens mount adapter or some duct tape and a paper towel tube, and maybe I could make it work. <laughs> you know, it's funny. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was talking to Joseph uh, Lanasky, who's, who's on the show from time to time. Um, about some gear that I was able to borrow from borrowlenses.com. So they let me borrow the Nikon D3S, the new 70-200 VR2 lens, um, and a Canon 5D Mark II with a 50mm 1.2 lens, Sarah, which I know you own. Um, I love and that cam- that lens <laughs> you, that that lens alone would tempt me to almost consider no. <laughs> don't say it. Don't say it out loud. No, don't say no, it, out loud. it would not. It would not. But <laughs> but the funny thing is, I, I had these two bodies, and I wanted to do a review. I, I ran out of time, unfortunately, but I was going to do a review of the new D3S with the new 7200 lens and my D3 with my older 7200 lens. But I was going to do a video review and shoot it with the Canon 5D. <laughs> <laughs> how ironic is that you know is but, that uh, strange or uh, it's, you know i don't want to cause a rift in the universe or something because all that power <laughs> you know and you know positives and negatives and all that but uh it is uh the d3s is a is a magical camera and i'll i'll, I'll do a quick blog post on my site about that but uh it's for me the the main reason i wanted to borrow that camera was to see if it made sense for me to uh, upgrade my D3, my regular old generic D3 to a D3S, and if I needed to upgrade my regular old 7200 to the new one. And uh, the net effect of it, or the what I came out with, is probably... I mean, it's a great body. The, 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 the sensor is markedly better, but for what I could sell my D3 for, and the price differential to buying the new one doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I'm staying put right now. Um, but speaking of that, and speaking of Nikon, uh, our guest today is Mr. Moose Peterson, who's uh, he's uh, in the Nikon camp. So guys, don't hate on him. And he uh, he's a very famous nature photographer who has some extensive experience with the Nikon D3 series, including the S and the new lenses and all that. So I had a chance to have an interview with him and talk about this stuff and his career and all that good stuff. So uh, give it a listen. This is Mr. Moose Peterson. Moose Peterson is a legendary wildlife photographer. Along with being on the front lines as a working shooter, he also helped shape the industry as a Nikon legend behind the lens, a member of the Lexar Elite, and he's a recipient of the John Muir Conservation Award, to name a few of his credits. He's a longtime Nikon shooter. He's one of the first photographers to receive the original D1 in 1999, and he became the first wildlife photographer to shoot strictly digital in the early years. Moose joins us today to talk what else photography and maybe share a few tips. Moose, welcome to This Week in Photography. 
Hey, thanks for having me here. It's uh, it's a great uh, opportunity to, again, talk with folks and uh, maybe share the message a little bit more about this thing called wildlife photography. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to chatting with you about this stuff. I, I had my first experience shooting wildlife uh, up in uh, Yellowstone a couple of months ago, well, several months ago. And, you know, honestly, that was my first time being out, I guess you would call that in the wild, you know, as much as a national park like that is. Um, but, you know, the wildlife was like right up next to me. I didn't have to do any camping out or anything like that. Um, so, Moose, how, how did you get into wildlife photography? What drew you into it? Well, there's no great glamorous or exciting story discovered at the drug counter kind of thing. It was just just the way life unfolded for me. Uh, you know, a combination of my family uh, having a, a cabin, a uh, summer cabin, where I live now full-time up in Mammoth Lakes, California, and this one little unit in third grade on birds, it just is the way life unfolded. Now, the funny thing, at least it's still funny to me, is the fact that when I first started out in the in the business, working for a photographer um, who's still out there, I'm not going to say the name, who told me, uh, point blank, that I would never succeed as a wildlife photographer. Yeah. And uh, to stick with my carpentry skills. And, you know, it just kind of goes to show you that um, it's amazing what you can do in this business and this profession if you just stick with it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's most things, right? If you, you go and do what you love, then uh, everything else will follow, I guess. It does. The uh, I've never been out for fame or fortune, just the ability to share my passion with others and pay the bills. And that kind of simple request from this profession has, you know, gone a long ways. There isn't a day that uh, Sharon and I don't wake up here in our home in the Sierras and not, like, pinch ourselves because photography made it possible for us to live in this incredible paradise. Yeah, that's that's great. That's awesome. So let's let's talk a little bit about um, gear. And I know you're a Nikon shooter, um, and uh, you're sponsored by Lexar, like we said in the beginning. There, what 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 is it about Nikon cameras? And I'm a Nikon shooter too, so I'm trying not to sound too biased. But what is it about Nikon cameras that that you like so much? A uh, f- couple things. First of all, it's got a romance to it. When I was incredibly Young, a cousin of mine had a Nikon F, so that was the first SLR camera I looked through and played with. And then mm-hmm. the other thing is the fact that, that Nikon, you know, since day one has had a better flash system, and flash is incredibly important yeah. in wildlife photography. And flash is why I've always stuck with Nikon. It's 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 a, a very important tool. Yeah. Now, are you are you using a lot of the the Nikon creative lighting system for your work, or do you do you use some other mode? It's everything I do with in wildlife work is all TTL, mm-hmm. and then any work that I'm doing, uh, be it products or people or anything else, it's also TTL. Mm-hmm. What's now called a creative lighting system. Uh, it's creative light system just means you can use more flashes. They talk to each other, but still uh, an ITTL solution. Yeah, yeah. And how have you seen that change or the the creative lighting system or TTL technology in Nikon speed lights? How's that changed in say the last ten years? Have you, is it just markedly better, or are we just seeing more and more efficiencies? <laughs> in the last fifteen years, we're still using the same flash tube in those flash units. Really? <laughs> so the heart of the, the the heart of the flash itself hasn't really changed. Now the buttons and dials and the possibilities that the computer can do 
and has taken over the horrible thing called the inverse square law so we can basically break that physics that has changed and that makes it easier for someone just coming into to flash into photography to embrace flash and then to uh, master it but yeah. the actual heart of it that tube uh doggone it still hasn't changed now does it need to change it sounds like it's, it's doing fun. oh hell yeah <laughs> it needs to change. We can have more power. We can have a lot of things. Uh, it's just a matter of priorities, maybe. Or, you know, we've got uh, people like uh, David Hobby and Joe McNally, some others that are really pushing the boundary with small flash and getting a lot of people excited about it, which is really cool. Yeah. And, of course, I kind of think it's ironic that people are getting excited about flash in this day and age where video in the camera is starting to come out, where, of course... One, uh, video and flash don't get along. <laughs> and then, two, if you're trying to use uh, the external mic, you've just lost your hot shoe. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of ironic that now people are embracing flash where maybe uh, it might have a limited life if, if it keep going the way of video. Yeah, and what do you think about that? I know that the new D3S, well, first of all, I want to ask you about the D3S because I assume that you have one. Um, what do you Silly think about- boy, of course I have one. <laughs> you got one before they even named it, I'm sure. No, but- no, uh, I actually, uh, I-, I was just very fortunate to get the very first production model available in the, in oh. the States, oh. but I wasn't part of the IP program at all. That's amazing. All right, so... The D3, so we've got three D3s now. We've got a D3, we've got a D3X, and a D3S now. Um, Who are they for, and why do we have three of them? That's an excellent question. Well, the D3, you know, that's the one that gave birth to everything. That really uh, changed the entire relationship between photographers and Nikon Digital. The incredible quality it came out with, the power, the frames per second. It was, you know, it's that's still a standard out there. And everything's being measured against it, rightly so. The D3X, when most people tell me they have a D3X, I kind of give them this look, which makes them feel kind of like I'm either scolding them or think they're an idiot. <laughs> and and uh, neither is the case. The D3X is a camera that, that offers incredible quality, but you're only going to see that quality if if you're doing like 24 by 30 prints or something very large. It's the the resolving power we have in the, the prints and, and print media like magazines and books. You actually really aren't going to see the incredible quality D3X brings out. So I'd rather see people put their money into time behind the camera shooting than into an $8,000 body. Mm-hmm. Then we have the D3S. And the D3S, well... We have a camera with a brand new sensor. It's not a remake. It's a brand new sensor. And in that sensor, we have what I consider to be quite remarkable high ISO abilities. You can shoot at 6400 ISO, and that's 6400, which is a staggering number from somebody who started out with ASA 64 as the standard. Uh, You can shoot at 6400, and uh, you could honestly probably have the same quality as that old Kodachrome 64, if you're really a craftsman, especially when it comes to exposure, because exposure is where a lot of noise gets born, and then, of course, poor processing in post also enhances or brings out noise. Mm-hmm. The D3S also has the video capability, and I've, I've been quite honest, having video in my still camera is not something that excites me. Uh, I can, you know, it only shoots video clips. Yeah. Uh, what's the difference? Well, the, the, 72, the 720p. Uh, video, you get a maximum of a five-minute clip. That's it. 
Oh, that's, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, most people haven't, aren't aware that you get a five-minute clip or a two-gigabyte file. That's the max. Uh, five-minute clip, when you start shooting video, you realize it's kind of a long clip, mm-hmm. but it's still not a video camera. Now, the only thing that I, I can honestly say that I've kind of embraced and what I think is kind of cool is strictly from an educational point of view, I can put on and turn on that video in the camera, and you can see the video exactly what I was doing in the process of creating that final image, where right before this, all you saw was the final image. You didn't see the process getting there. Now you can see that in these clips. And so I just finished filming another of my Kelby training videos for the guys at NAP on uh, beach bird photography. And you'll see in that embedded a whole bunch of videos from the D3S. So you're going to have... Not only these two external video cameras showing what I'm doing, but you'll see through the 600 what I'm doing. So that's kind of exciting, but it's not going to replace the Moose Cam, which is a, a 1080p uh, video camera. Excellent. So, so you're not not that excited about video. So, if we're looking at we're looking at these these cameras like the D3s that uh, starts at 60 ISO 6400 and goes on up to these crazy ISO levels. What is that doing to the necessity to even have a a speed light or a strobe? Oh, well, that doesn't replace the magic in the craftsmanship that is light and light and the the photographer and that very important relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because you can crank the ISO up, first of all, doesn't mean you should. And two, doesn't mean you can replace the flash. Uh, personally, I'm still going to shoot at, at ISO 200. I'll always shoot in the basement. You, you want the maximum quality that you're paying for in that camera. And, and what, the D3S is going like 5000 something like that, street price? Mm-hmm. To sit there and spend that kind of money and, and just, in my opinion, throw it away because you can shoot a high ISO rather than craft image with either flash, reflectors, whatever it is you need to, that's a big mistake. Uh, the quality that comes out of that camera is is the based on the skill set the photographer brings to the situation in marriage to those tools, not just dependent on those tools. Yeah. So for the guy out there, me, that has a D3 and is considering upgrading, um, my, my path, you think, would probably be, unless I'm making gigantic prints, um, would be to move to a D3S and not an X. Is that, is that a fair statement? Um, if you have a D3 right now uh, and you want to think about the D3S, mm-hmm. uh, I recommend you think uh, ask yourself two questions. Does your photography depend on high ISO performance or does it depend on video? Mm-hmm. If you don't need those two things, do not upgrade to a D3S. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are creating images that are 24 by 30 or larger and you need the incredible quality the d3x can deliver and at the same time you have the skill set to process that file and not harm that quality and people do that because they don't have those skills then the d3x is not for you either stick with the d3 and and right now the d3 is is out there used very inexpensively especially compared to its initial offering you could buy that d3 and a lens and have money left over compared to buying a new D3S and that might get your photography a lot further down the road. Yeah. Well, speaking of lenses, uh, one of the, the lenses that a lot of Nikon shooters 
uh, me again included, that are shooting these full frame uh, bodies or waiting for is that 70 to 200 VR2 mm-hmm. that, that just came out. Um, what do you think about that lens? Uh, I'm assuming you have one. What, what do you think about it? Again, silly boy, of course I've got one. <laughs> I am a, How can I, I be moose? I want to be moose. That's you it. have to. You have to understand. I, I have. I have an addiction, and I'm sorry, world. Yes, I'm Moose Peterson gear addict. Okay, <laughs> um, it's to the point where when the consignment gear comes in each January for our digital landscape workshop series, and I get this box of new gear for the consignment loaner cases. I kind of weird. I go down to one of our bedrooms. I close the door. I open all the boxes, and I just kind of smell that new gear. Um, you like, you I, like candles and all that? <laughs> not that weird because that would take away from that aroma of new camera gear. But I'm kind of, you know, you know you're talking to a guy who right now next to his desk, his 600 set up on a tripod so he shoots out the window. I have this thing for gear. So the 7200 VR2 um, – it's it's a beautiful lens. Now, should you upgrade? Now, the main design uh, upgrade in this lens is the fact that you can shoot FX and not have vignetting. Mm-hmm. You're going to want to set the camera to normal and shoot it, and you won't see the vignetting. You get past that. What does it have over the last the the original version? It's a tad sharper. It has a tad more contrast, and so that gives you a better color. And it is a tad smaller. Now, those little tads, are they really important? It's hard for me to answer that to most folks. Uh, and my gut feeling is that if you're an FX shooter, then you should upgrade because those little differences, the D3, the X, or the S, will show you a better file and deliver you a better file. You'll see better results in you know an 8x10 or the printed page. The other thing that... Um, I want to throw out there for folks, if you have the older 7200 and you spend time dealing with the darkening corners, the vignetting on the FX camera bodies, just the investment you'll make in time not dealing with that anymore, to me, you're paying, you're buying time, which, as we all know, you can't buy that on the markets. Yeah. So if you can you save yourself post-processing time by upgrading right off the bat, that makes it a, like a no-brainer upgrade. Yeah. And what do you, what about uh you know on this show this week in photography we talk about the uh the advantages of moving to a full frame or FX sensor versus a crop frame or DX sensor uh on the Nikon side. What what are your thoughts on that? Um in, in terms of the the cost savings of staying with DX lenses versus going with FX? That's a real common question. I don't know if I have the perfect answer. Uh I can only say for myself, I'm an old fart at this point, and I've been in this business now for 30 years. I started off with 35 millimeter. I, my mind, when it comes to arranging the elements in the frame for selecting the, this lens or that lens based on what I'm seeing, all is on that format. So for me, FX is just like you could say going home, even though it's been around for a few years now. And I'm Remember when DX first came out and people, you know, oh, my God, it's going to kill photography. How can you dare do that? And now the question is, well, why are you taking it away from me? You know, I want that crop factor so I don't have to own as big a lens or other things. It's, you know, this whole question about should I buy this lens or that body or use this format or that really comes down 
to a very personal question. And you have to ask yourself, what tools do you need so when you go out and take that photograph, that photograph is pulling the heartstrings of the viewer of your image. And for each one of us, there should be a different answer. And that's the beauty of photography. That's why I've been sharing all I can for 30 years, knowing that we're all going to approach it just a little bit differently with different tools, a different passion, different life experiences. And that's what makes photography such a grand pursuit. Yeah. Now, now Moose, taking it back a little bit to, to gear, and um, I guess we never really left gear. but uh, No, we haven't. <laughs> talking about stuff. You know, people right now, a lot of people are crunched and they can't, you know, they see these new bodies and lenses and all this stuff coming out and they just, you know, it's just like a dagger to the heart because they can't buy it. They can't get it. Um, but what I preach a lot on the show is, you know, if you can't buy it, at least rent it and play with it. What do you what do you think about the idea of renting gear uh, like these long lenses that you're only going to use every once in a while if you're the average shooter, not a wildlife shooter? Um, what do you think about that? Is that a viable way to go? Renting is a great option, especially if you're just thinking about upgrading or purchasing a new lens. Uh, renting uh, something from LensPro to go for a week or two weeks and using it to see if it really fits your style of photography is incredibly smart. The one thing I would suggest is what people do is they tend to rent a gear, piece of gear, and then for the, most of the rental time, they can't shoot with it. It just sits there. So plan out that rental so you have as much time behind the camera with that piece of gear as you possibly can. Now, whether you rent a piece of gear or you buy a new piece of gear, the one thing I recommend and what I do personally, whenever I get something new, I I shoot with it almost religiously and exclusively for the first week or two. I just force myself to use that lens to see if it really does what I think it should. And and here's the problem. Uh, Photographers... We kind of put gear on this pedestal, and when we, especially once you buy it, it's like it can't be wrong. I, I've got to, I've, I know I've made the right choice, and so you convince yourself, you talk yourself into it when sometimes that's just not the case. And renting is a great way of bypassing that syndrome. That's why people buy so much gear they really don't need or want. Yeah, it's almost, almost like a gear Stockholm syndrome or something, right? Uh, at the very least, and not that I'm like immune to it either. Okay, uh, the fact I'm in business forces the issue. You know, it has to. Every piece of gear I own has to pay bills. It, it can't just sit here in a cupboard. You know, it's it's got to pull its own weight. Yeah. Now uh, let's talk. Let's take it off of gear a little bit and talk about uh, what you're doing with the the Kelby crew over there. I know you have some titles out on. On Scott's training site, the the Kelby training site. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Well, Scott has made it possible uh, through his incredible, incredible creative genius to put out videos that folks can watch over and over again and learn uh, both from listening and from watching uh, techniques that might apply to their photography. At the same time, People have to look at those and say, okay, that doesn't really work for me, and ignore that and just take in those pieces, those nuggets that work for the photography. And Scott and the whole crew, uh, Scriv and the rest, just make it so easy for for you to do that. I just, uh, over Thanksgiving holiday, for in those, uh, what, three days, we, we did another nine video takes oh, wow. of, of different things that uh, hopefully will help folks 
you know, get more out of the photography. Now, the thing that's really great about this is the fact that you can watch something over and over and over again, and you need to do that because there's so many little things, uh, techniques just being spoken about and being um, demoed just in the, in the actual shooting that people need to, you know, watch over and over going to pick them all up. Yeah. All but right. working with those guys, you know, be it Photoshop World, uh, Photoshop User TV, the magazine, or the training, they are incredibly creative and open to ideas. And that kind of a venue uh, is, is just non-existent anywhere else in this industry. So uh, I, there's no way you can't gravitate to it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, the the online training stuff is one of those things that just has changed, from, for me at least, has changed photography in some respects you know when i was sort of coming up and doing my and and learning how to shoot um i was in the library a lot you know there was no it wasn't the internet you know so what's I was, that exactly there was no internet i was in the library i was finding all these books from different folks now granted there were ansel adams books in there um so i learned a lot from there but i was literally in the library with books i'd check them out and go into the dark room have the books open on this side and i'm with the enlarger on the other side of the room trying stuff out now you can have folks like you just explain this is how you do this and this is how you do that i would have killed for that back then so bravo and thank you well but you also you're welcome but you also bring up an important point and something i think is kind of lost and Photographers nowadays don't tend to look at images that they uh, either enjoy, they find are amazing, or they just fascinate them and actually back engineer how that photograph was taken. Yeah. That back engineering process, if you start doing that with photographs from others you admire as well as your own, uh, you start understanding that back engineering. You'd be surprised when you put that viewfinder to your eye how those little things start to pop from your mind and you incorporate them and that's an important part of the learning process as well yeah yeah it is and that's that's exactly what i was doing because i was yeah I, I thought i wanted to do all these special and i did i wanted to do all these special effects thing this is of course pre-photoshop so i wanted to try to do these multiple exposures so and it it forced me to learn about light, you know. So I was in the field doing multiple exposures on the film, then doing multiple exposures in the dark room, and trying to do all this stuff and replicate what I saw in the books. And I learned a lot about how uh, film works just doing those little experiments. So, yeah, definitely the reverse engineering is is a, a great tip to take away. It's an, something I do still every day. Nice. All right, so yeah, I have a Moose, I have a list of questions here to ask you, uh, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to Twitter because I sent out a Twitter earlier to uh, to my Twitter followers at Frederick Van, and they have responded. So, and they pretty much asked all the questions that I wanted to ask you. So I'm just going to take it from there. Let's go for it. All right, great. So the first one is from a guy by the name of David Martinez, and he says, "How did he get the name Moose?" <laughs> well, uh, that is a story that still uh, plagues the family. Uh, to this day, my mom still has never called me by that or written that word. And, and there's one, though, that my dad came up with uh, from the beginning. So people, I always have to pull out my driver's license and show them, see, here it is. It's really there. Uh, it's just one of those things. It, it just, like so many things in my life, it just happened to come along and it fits. And, and it and it stuck from that point forward. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Great. Here's another one from 
a guy by the name of Pentax fan. He says, question for Moose, name one thing in your career that you would change or do again differently or, or for a different outcome. Oh, there isn't just one thing. Uh, I go back and look at some of my photographs taken, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and I just wish I knew more about photography back then. So opportunities that have never been able to uh, reappear, especially working with uh, threatened and endangered critters. I wish I had better skill sets back then so I could have done a better job. Uh, there isn't just one. There are there are lots and lots and lots. That's That's part of the process. Yeah, hindsight, right. Um, another question up is from Carl Lacari. He says, ask Moose if he had to pick between a 300mm 2.8 and a 200-400mm, which one would he go for? Well, here's the fortunality of me. I don't have to pick one or the other. <laughs> uh, and but if you had to, if you had to. People yeah. always have to put that parameter if you had to. And, yeah. and, I, and the thing is, I don't. Um, the difference there is strictly uh, the depth of field. All right. Yeah. You have a two weight versus a F four. Yeah. How much skill do you have to make that subject pop and tell a story at two point eight versus F four? Now to add to add to this, I have a two hundred F two, so I don't use three hundred two eight. I have a two hundred F two. Wow. And I shoot at F two a lot, and that is an incredibly narrow depth of field. I also have the two hundred to four hundred, and this kind of goes back to the question about renting. Okay, and if if I had a job that came up and I had to have a 3028, I would rent it. And in the old days, I did own a 3028. I have not I that went the first week I had the 200 or 400 in the office that was sold. Nice. All right, Ted wants to know how he says how the hell did he get that buffalo in the studio and who cleaned up afterwards? <laughs> Well, if you look very carefully in the video, I placed very carefully on the left a large trash can and a <laughs> snow shovel. Now, people wonder about how we got the bison in the studio in Tampa. You have to ask yourself, how do we get a snow shovel in Tampa? Uh, that's even harder to come by. Yeah. And then I would, I would challenge folks to think about this for a second. I'm working and doing this video with who? The folks at NAP. Yeah. Yep. And what are they really good at? Photoshop mm -hmm. and Photoshop CS4 extended works with video so that bison wasn't in the studio it was a video clip that was placed in there very cool alright uh, Jan wants to know uh, it was another buffalo question so we'll skip that but uh, her second part of the question is um, what's up with D-Town and is it returning um, I am not uh, officially part of like the D-Town cast. Mm -hmm. uh, Scott made it uh, possible for me to send in video clips of little tips. As I understand it from what they said, uh, I believe in the last Photoshop user TV, that D-Town would be coming back shortly. But uh, other than that, I've not been part of any of the new production, so I don't have the answer. Gotcha. All right, the questions are continuing to stream in, but I'm going to take two more. Um, this next one is from Tim Rogan. He says, why does he absolutely refuse to crop his images? <laughs> why do I absolutely <laughs> refuse to crop my images? Wow. Uh, it's a, you know what? be honest with you, it's not an uncommon question. And I find myself having to defend, more or less, for lack of better terms, the craftsmanship that is to be a photographer. Now, when I started out, it, 
was a thing called film that was going through that film gate. Yeah. And the image going to the, the photo buyer, the editor, was with inside this cardboard mount. You couldn't take that cardboard mount and put a bunch of tape on it to say, well, just use a section. Because that was an instant indicator to the photo buyer. You had no clue about your craft. Uh, cropping, you know, I put stuff out there. And every time I put it out there, uh, I, 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 one, worry about people saying and carving in the stone, that's the only way you can do it. Or two, making a judgment call based on that comment. When all I'm saying are the standards in which I hold my own photography too. And on the flip side, I've been doing this for 30 years and I'm still here doing it. So maybe perhaps, possibly, remotely, that those standards, though they might seem really high, have allowed me to stay around and continue to grow 30 years into the process. Yeah. All right. This this last question is is a great last question. It's from Eric Ehlers, and he says, if he had to start from scratch today, one, would he? And two, does he think he would be as successful? Yeah, those are good questions. Uh, would I? Uh, hell yeah. Uh, I think <laughs> the opportunities are even greater than when I started. But it comes down really to the individual. Uh, there, you know, anybody who thinks that this is a, a forty-hour-a-week job, or you know, uh, th- you know, a few days out of the month, they don't understand. This is an all-consuming. You know, there isn't a moment when uh, photography is not somewhere in my thought. I mean, not to get too graphic for your your readers or your listeners, but you know, uh, Sharon knows that when I, I get out of the shower, usually not to talk to me because there's ideas that will come to me that I have to write down before I forget them. It's it's always there. Now, anybody who follows my blog sees on the links this this name called Jake Peterson. Uh, that's no coincidence. That's our youngest son, and Jake is uh, just turned 21. And he is, uh, in my opinion, a really, really good wildlife photographer. And he's just starting out. And, yeah, even though knowing what's going on in the industry and and point blank knowing things that most of your audience isn't privy to because of things like NDAs, uh, even with all that information, uh, encouraging Jake to continue on, I have no hesitancy to do with that. Now, a lot of people out there – are working your basic nine-to-five job, which is no different than when I started out. I had a nine-to-five job. And with that, I still pushed and with, you know, the incredible amount of help that Sharon, my wife, was has always been there since the beginning, helping me go out there and, and push and push and push, even working that, that job. And you, and you, you have to push. And today, you know, people look at what I'm doing and they say, and I appreciate their, their very kind words about my photography, my efforts, but they don't realize that for me personally, I still haven't reached that place. Now, do I know what that place is? Do I, will I know it when I get there? No and no, and hopefully I never do because otherwise I'll stop pushing, and, and I don't want to do that. I want to keep learning and keep moving on. And in that process, I'll, I'll share what I've learned so people don't have to reinvent the wheel. At the same time, uh, I'm always going to be ahead of the curve because I already have those technique, skills, and equipment already behind me and I'm moving forward. So that's a great question. And yeah, I, I think there's room for a hell of a lot more photographers doing what I do. Uh, and that's why I, I help as much as I can. 
And yeah, if uh, if I was 18 and starting all over again, there's no way I, I would do anything but what I'm doing, even knowing what I know. Excellent. That's a that's a great last question. So, Ms. where where can people uh, find you if they're they're looking for to learn more about you and 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 learn from you and all sorts of stuff like that? Oh, Lordy, where aren't I anymore? Uh, <laughs> you know. This thing called the web, I started out back, and I had to figure it out for some other question. It was 1987 when I first started pirating into a university's uh, computer so I could send out email. So, you know, I'm everywhere. The most common place is moosepeterson.com slash blog. We've gone and painfully taken all the, the sites, websites, and blog and combined them into one super site. So everything's one place now. And that's where you'll find me most of the time. And anything that's new that's coming out via either workshops or educational with other people like Kelby training uh, all gets posted on the blog so people can then access it. Perfect. All right. MoosePeterson.com. And you're on Twitter as Moose Peterson, correct? Surprisingly, I, I use my name. Yeah, there's no uh, no hidden there. It's it's Moose Peterson. Yeah, I'm looking at your icon right now. It looks like, uh, strangely enough, Bullwinkle, right? Back when I was uh, the nature editor for Pop Photographer Magazine back in the early 90s, uh, I'll never forget they uh, had to give me my uh, password to upload my articles and stuff back then. And, and they were so thrilled and tickled when they said, oh, your password's Bullwinkle. I'm like, wow, I never heard that one before. <laughs> yuck, 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 yuck. Yeah, boom, boom. All right, Moose, thank you so much for taking the time out tonight to uh, to talk to me and to this Week in Photography audience. This has been educational and inspirational. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate being able to get uh, my two cents worth out to the folks, and hopefully it uh, helps them make a better click tomorrow. All right, I'm, I'm sure it will. That was Moose Peterson. He's a, a nature photography. You can check out his, a link to his website in the show notes. Follow him on Twitter and all that good stuff. Uh, amazing stuff there. And uh, we'll definitely link to all the sites and areas that he talked about in the, in the show notes on twiplog.com. But now it is time for listener questions. And the first question is assigned to Mr. Aaron Mailer. Aaron, you want to take it away? Sure. Uh, this is a question sent in by a listener, Robert Martinez. Um, it says, quick question. When loading my pictures to my Canon G11, is it preferable to use Canon software to upload the pics to my PC, or is it okay if I'll be missing something if I just load them straight into Lightroom too? Um, he said the manual, of course, states that everything should be loaded through the Canon software. Um, hmm. Personally speaking, there, there's a lot of debate about this. It has some to do with JPEG versus RAW as well. Um, I... I don't use the Canon software actually at all. I mean, I, my stuff goes straight into Lightroom 2 or Lightroom 3 beta. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of people. Um, where it really starts to make a little bit of a difference potentially is in raw processing because, um, you know, the secret sauce is in different, you know, uh, vendor applications for how they process their raw images. Some people argue that uh, Canon does some unique things with their raw images that maybe they should pass through there on their way through. Personally, I just find it interrupts my workflow too much. And, um, you know, your mileage may vary, but uh, honestly, you're completely safe uh, just going from camera straight to, uh, you know, into Lightroom or Aperture or whatever you choose to use. And, and I would kind of pass that question around to the rest of the group here, too. Yeah, I'd love um, to get Ron's thoughts on that. Ron, Ron, you you uh, you have some extensive experience with the different algorithms and all that. What Does it make any difference uh, what uh, you use okay. to import? Uh, technically, to answer your question, yes, it definitely makes a difference. Uh, whether it's an advantage or not is is the real question. Uh, yeah, every every manufacturer sort of has their own 
uh, raw decoding algorithm. So, you know, when I was at Apple, I mean, there was a lot of back and forth sort of deciding, you know, what, what is the algorithm that we're going to use to decode raw images? And it's, it's not at all a, you know, completely objective function. It's very much uh, sort of tuning in color balance and sharpness and, and you know, uh, different debayering techniques. There's all kinds of stuff that goes on in there to, to decode a raw image to give you what you see on the screen. And everyone is different. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's better. And I don't, you know, you... I'm sure some people will claim that Canon's raw decoder is is better. And the one thing that you probably do get uh, with the Canon raw decoder compared to any other one is that you, you will get almost certainly a very close match to what you see with the JPEGs produced out of it compared to what you see in the back of the camera. But other than that, no, you know, I, and there's, there's plenty of people that will claim that they prefer, and this is really a preference, the raw decoder from Adobe or from Apple or from Canon, but it really is a preference at that point. Okay. And uh, before we continue with the listener questions, I want to give a quick nod to our sponsor, and that's Audible.com. They're the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 50,000 titles to choose from, and they can be downloaded and played back anywhere. I know Aaron is in the middle of something right now. Stephen King book. Aaron, what are you reading? Um, anyway, yeah, the uh, the book I'm deeply involved in right now uh, through Audible is uh, Stephen King's latest uh, Under the Dome, which uh, I I didn't have any prior information about it. Uh, it was just one that I saw on Audible's page because I had a few credits piled up because I've been really busy and uh, wanted to grab some audio books for my wife and I went on our, our cruise a week or so ago, none of which I actually took the time to listen to on the cruise because we had a wonderful time doing other things. But as soon as I got back, um, I started listening to Stephen King's Under the Dome and have gotten completely immersed in it. I'm only about halfway through it now, so I, you know, I can't give a, a total book review. But um, at the pace that it's going now, I am, I'm pretty drawn into the book, and I think anybody else who would listen to it probably enjoy it as well. So I highly recommend it. I think it's a single-credit download. Oh, very cool. Ron, are you listening to anything on Audible right now? Are you taking a break? Uh, what am I listening to? I know I am. No, I, I just finished. Uh, <laughs> I just finished a very strange book called the the uh, the Death of Bunny Monroe <laughs> by uh, uh, Nick Cave of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, musician. He's also written a couple books, and this one's very twisted. So. <laughs> All right. Yeah, uh, let's. I, I can't say I can really recommend it, but it's. Uh... <laughs> we'll wait till you finish it. You know, maybe it'll untwist itself. Yeah. All right. Let's jump back into the listener questions. Uh, the next question is assigned to you, Sarah. Let me read it for you. It says, uh, "This is from uh, listener Michael Vanist. Vanist, and he says." One day I hope to start a commercial advertising photography business, but would like to know from the pros if it would be better to start off slow with equipment and just buy as the demand calls for it, or should I buy all of the latest gear so I'll be ready? Sarah? Um well, that's a really good question. I get that question quite a bit actually from other photographers and um there's a couple ways to go with it. I mean, it's hard to get money right now. Like loans and things for businesses can be challenging to get. Uh, I really started off with just building my equipment up and, and it worked really well for me. Um, you can actually get started with some good lenses that aren't that expensive. So, you know, if you've got a couple grand to start out with, that might actually be enough to get started. So I don't have any problem with building your lenses kind of as you go. Um, I'm a Canon shooter, but there's a couple good lenses I'd recommend just for getting started because I'm kind of a, a prime shooter, and that's something that came later on. 
Um, I used to shoot a lot of zooms when I first got started and then switched to primes, but there's some great primes that you can get um, inexpensively, like the 50. One four is like three seventy five. You can get the eighty five one eight, and that's around the same price. Um, the twenty eight one eight is another good fixed lens that's under five hundred dollars. And like the fifty macro two point, the two point five, that's a great lens. I still have that in my repertoire, and I had that um, in the very beginning too. So. Uh, there are a lot of really great lenses out there. Even like a, a wide zoom, you can get like a 17 to 40 f4 if you're shooting. You're shooting commercial, obviously, so that might not be as great as for shooting weddings. You don't actually need a great depth of field a lot of times for uh, those wide angle shots. So a 17 to 40 can be a great lens if you can't afford a 16 to 35. So there's a lot of really great lenses out there that you can get started with for under 500 bucks and start building a really great portfolio. And then as jobs and stuff come in and you make money, you can just, you know, make it so that every job you book, you buy a new lens and then you can move up to my lovely 51 two that I'm in love with. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my favorite lens is my thirty-five four, not even my fifty. So you should try that one, Frederick. Wow. Yeah. Hey, Sarah, do you um, do you advocate lens rental at all too in the process? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I definitely rented some lenses, and I actually um, <laughs> loan out or rent out my lenses to a few of yeah, my photographer friends as they're trying to build their gear as well. So. Um, borrowedlenses.com is a great site for getting rentals, or you can always get someplace local. The only hard thing with that I found, at least with our local rental places, they want a deposit of the amount of the lens, mm. which I think is kind mm. of funny. I'm like, you think if I had that much money in the bank, I'd be, I'd be getting it from you. I, I'd be buying it myself if I needed, but as long as you got some available credit on a credit card, you can um, get those locally too. Wow. That's right. interesting. I, that's the first time I've heard of that. I know borrowlenses.com and lensrentals.com. Uh, they make it really easy for you to, to rent it. I mean, uh, the only, if you're, if you're not local to them, like borrow lenses is here in the Bay area. You can just drive there and get it and bring it back. So that makes for easy kind of spur of the moment decisions like, Oh, I want to go on a road trip. You can go grab a lens if they have it available. Um, but if you're renting and you're remote and you're, you're renting through the mail, then you, of course you got to, you have to allow for the, the transit time of that lens, but neither one of those that I know of, maybe I'm, maybe they do on higher ticket mm -hmm. items, but neither one of them require a deposit. Do you know any differently, Ron? Well, you, you put your credit card on file with them though. And I'd yeah. be willing to bet most of the time when you do something like that, they, they do, uh, basically a credit card hold for a certain amount of money. So right. it does, it's not the kind of thing that shows up on your bill, but if you were to call your credit card company, uh, they can tell you, yes, there is a you know $400 hold on your credit card. So yeah. it's, it's there somewhere. You just don't necessarily see it. All right. Here's, here's, a, call, here's a call out to, uh, to Roger and Josh from uh, Lens Rentals and BorrowLenses.com. On the show notes for this episode... Clarify that and and just yeah. let us let everyone know what the what the real deal is with regard to holds and deposits and all that good stuff. Sarah, what were you going to say? Oh, I was I was just going to say every every place is a little bit different. I know I like to go to the place down the street because it's so close, and I don't you know if I want to rent something, it's usually because I have a piece of gear that's at Canon. <laughs> that I needed and didn't realize. So it's nice to have a place in town that you can get it from really quickly. Yep. Speaking of rentals, too, if you want to have a lot of fun, 
and you got some time to kill, rent the new um, Canon tilt shift lens, the 24 millimeter. The, mm. That has got to be the sharpest lens I've ever laid hands on in my life. It is wow. absolutely phenomenal, and it was painful to send that one back last week. Did you uh, did you post any of the images you shot with that, Aaron? I haven't yet. I, I you know going on vacation for a week means that I have two weeks of solid craziness afterwards to pay for having done it. So, yeah. um, so I'm getting around here as we roll into the Christmas holiday. I'm off the whole end of December after next week, so I'm gonna have some time to focus on my photos, and I'll get some things online when I do it. All right. Uh, next question up is, um, let's give it to Ron. Ron, you want to take this one away? No, wait, I'm about to sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> is live television. Frederick, maybe, maybe you should read the question. No, uh, let's pause. Let's right, pause for the cause. No, 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 it's, it's, the moment has passed. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's awesome. It's awesome. He's in the middle sense. of reading this, this paragraph. Right, ready to go. <laughs> All right. This is from Todd Bologna. He says, uh, since I've only been shooting digital, I'm not familiar with darkroom processes. I belong to a photo club, and we can manipulate photos for the uh, uh, assigned category using only darkroom techniques and processes. No one can tell me what the darkroom techniques are and what the equivalent is in Photoshop. I know this sounds rudimentary, but I usually submit photos straight out of the camera. They can use some improvement. Thoughts, comments, suggestions. And yeah, I mean, it's a very good point that... You know, there's not a one-to-one mapping between what you do in the dark room and what you do digitally. Uh, and in fact, uh, a lot of times it's very hard to figure out sort of what the photochemical equivalent is to, uh, uh, you know, the, the digital piece of it. Because uh, it is it's a different sort of process. And film does all kinds of interesting things whenever you're up in exposure. And there's weird uh, artifacts, I guess, of of digital versus film. But, you know, I would say that at some level, I guess my biggest take on it would be at some level, it doesn't really matter because it's kind of like you should really be judging your photos on sort of what do you like, you know, what do you see out of what you're getting and learning, you know, visually what the result is is a lot more important than trying to match a particular photographic process. Mm -hmm. Lighten and darken or dodge and burn, uh, most digital tools have an equivalent of that and it's reasonably similar in terms of sort of up in the exposure, uh, you're trying to mimic sort of the exposure of the print through the negative. Uh, and to dodge and burn, I think in Photoshop as well as in Aperture and in Lightroom are all reasonable approximations of that. I don't know, but I mean, what's your guys' take on it? I don't know. My, my, it, it, <laughs> that's a hard one because if you're, there's a lot of variables in there, Ron. Like you were saying, you know, the from everything from the color of the light that you're using in the enlarger, you know, presumably this this uh, Todd could be doing color printing, right? So the color of the, the the color balance of the enlarger, the kind of paper, the texture of that paper, the chemicals, all that stuff, you know, contributes to what that final print is going to look like. And to say that you can only use darkroom techniques, I could see if they're saying, okay, no cloning and no HDR and, you know, being specific about that kind of stuff. But... Seeing yeah, no dark techniques is, is uh, it's a little general. What do you think, uh, Sarah? Yeah, I, th- I think that y- the essentially you can get kind of the gist of, of what's going on, that doing just the darkroom processes is kind of like dodging and burning, and mm-hmm. um, those things can be done. And then other than that, I mean, textures and overlays and, you know, there. I mean, there's so many things that Photoshop has brought to our world. Yeah. 
I, I think you make a good point. Maybe that's really what the uh, what they're trying to say in this uh, environment is. You know, they're just using this term. Uh, can only use darkroom techniques or darkroom-like techniques to kind of limit the amount of processing that can be done and sort of not allow for things like cloning and, and compositing and multi-layer stuff. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's just sort of a shorthand they're using for saying, you know, you're only allowed to do sort of basic color correction type of things and localized uh, adjustments of that sort. Maybe they should have just said that. <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, before we before we jump into the um, the picks of the week, Sarah, I hope yours is ready. Um, it is. A quick nod to the Ford Sync again. Sync listens to your voice, uh, so without using your hands, you can make calls on your mobile phone, find and play music and podcasts, get turn by turn navigation, and access real time traffic and weather, all using the new hands free function of Sync. If you like more details on that, head over to Sync My Ride Podcast. Dot com. All right, let's jump into those uh, those picks of the week. And uh, first up, let's give it to the lady of the group, Sarah. What's up? So my pick of the week is Shoot Um During the process of uh, kind of the holidays and stuff like that, uh, Shoot Queue is actually our back end that allows us to keep track of what's going on with our clients, handle billing, um, do bookings for our clients, and it really keeps everyone on task on what they need to be doing, including my intern uh, and my studio manager and myself. And uh, they actually just announced and introduced this new thing as new clients kind of come in. It's really cool that they're able to actually purchase my workflow. So we've created like a step-by-step that allows you to check off, okay, I've I've um, shot the event. I've, I've got the gear ready for the event. I've shot the event. And then when I come back, I've downloaded the cards. I've done all these things. And they're assigned to different people in our in our studio. So all of that is available um, for purchase. And then you can actually, it just goes straight into your shoot queue account. So you don't even have to set it up anymore. And you can kind of get training as well as um, have a really functional back-end system for your studio with a click of a button. So um, that's definitely completely changed our world in the studio this year. And it's absolutely my, my pick. That's great. So, so uh, before I know you could build your own custom workflows in there, you could say, um, okay, I shoot a wedding and the, the, the major milestones that have to do with this particular event are A, B, C, and D. Now, are you saying that you can now download, like if I said, you know, I really admire how Sarah France does business and I want her workflow. I want to model my business after what she's doing. I can download that workflow and and do stuff like you do it. Is that is that what the, the gist of it is? That's exactly what I'm saying. You can see exactly what we do. Um, and not only that, but we've included uh, email templates. So you can buy just the email templates of emails that we send out to clients on a regular basis. Uh, questionnaires we send with, to clients on a regular basis. And uh, all pretty much all of our album process, you can buy in like one um, little click of a button too that gives you like the emails we send out, um, our workflows for that product. And not only do they have workflows for events, but they have workflows that you can create or you can purchase and then modify for products. So every product that you sell has a workflow that's attached to it. Obviously, you have to do things once you sell a product to create it. So 
um, this gives you the product workflow for like albums per se. And then you go in and make adjustments to make it work for you if it's not quite right. But the wedding workflow has been our uh, most popular thing that people have wanted. And it's such a hard thing to kind of go through that whole process with people. But this just implements it into their business and gives them kind of all the tips and stuff that we have. And we give little notes and education as well on, on how to implement it into their business. So what does it cost? Um, they're all different. So like the email templates, I think are $29 and then all the way up to the, the, um, big package that includes everything is two forty nine. That's, um, includes like email templates and questionnaires and workflows and all of it. Very cool. Yeah. All right, Ron, what is your pick of the week? It's just a quick one, and you're, you're going to have people, listeners are going to have to go to the uh, website to get the, the link. But there's this um, photographic, almost a post processing, really, technique called uh, polar coordinate panoramas. Once you guys have sort of seen any of these, you've probably seen these images. It's basically, you, you grab a, a full 360 degree panorama, and then Photoshop and some other tools have this method of kind of warping it into this, what really ends up being like the ultimate fisheye. Mm-hmm. Um, the the most common thing you see out of this is sort of a, a picture where it looks like there's this little tiny planet in the middle around the sky and you see your entire uh, 360 degree horizon sort of represents what you were seeing. And it was kind of neat looking. So I put a link to a bunch of really well done ones uh, on a website. And then there's also a separate link that we'll put on the web page to a tutorial for how to do it. Uh, but it's, it's a neat look. And uh, so far it hasn't gotten too... Uh, overdone yet so check it out very cool all right and aaron what do you have uh, mine's a fairly quick one too uh it's the lexar dual slot udma card reader um it's got the really sexy name of rw035-001 so I don't know <laughs> how much we love numerica names for products uh the reason i did this it's not like i don't have enough card readers around in my life but uh Having um, gone with a 5D Mark II, I've been switching to uh, UDMA CF cards just for their performance. And not so much because my older non-UDMA cards were a problem in the camera, but because I was going to start to die of old age downloading 8 and 16 gig cards you know, to the computer afterwards. So um, I went with the UDMA card reader. Now, you're not going to get any real benefit and speed from this unless your CF cards are also UDMA. Um, and just to mention, the UDMA is it's it's another standard for the read and write process to the card that vastly speeds up uh, the, the communications process. So, the main reason I got it again was that when I pull these cards out of my camera, I'm downloading them a whole lot faster in my laptop than it was with my traditional, you know, pre non UDMA card readers. So, if you have older cards that aren't UDMA, it's not going to do you much good speed wise. But if you're starting to make the change, change it both for the camera and for the computer, and you'll you'll save yourself a whole lot of time. I think it was about thirty two dollars on Amazon. Very cool. All right. Uh, just got a, a quick note from Twitter. Borrow Lenses just chimed in on that whole are deposits required thing and said no deposits are required from borrowlenses.com. So they closed that argument down. And quickly, uh, my my tip of the week is a little app called Dropbox, D-R-O-P-Box.com. And uh, essentially what they do for me is everything that I thought my iDisk should have done. You know, So basically I get a folder on my in my finder on my Mac that I can put files into and then synchronize that folder with any number of other Macs. I can also create a shared folder that I can then give to other people and I can just drop files into that or they can drop files into that to instantly share with me. This works flawlessly, works in the background. I have all my 
PDF, Word, pages, numbers, files, all that stuff are stored in there. And uh, I can access them from whatever machine I happen to be on. The cool thing is they also have an iPhone application that uh, you install tied to your account, and you can also view all your files directly on the iPhone. Uh, one of the cool little nuances of that is if you, there's an image folder in there. You just throw JPEG images in there or whatever images that the it will recognize, and it immediately just creates a slideshow from them. So you just throw a bunch of images into your pictures folder, and suddenly on your iPhone you have a slideshow. So no uploading, no any of this crazy configuration stuff. Just drop images in there, and boom, automatically have a slideshow. It also plays the uh, whatever audio files you have loaded in there. So if you throw random MP3 files into your audio folder and then look at your audio folder on your in your Dropbox application on the iPhone, you can just play those right there. So it's a it's sort of a game changer for me. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. I have to yeah, I I don't know if we all use it, but I use Dropbox yep. too and it totally did exactly what you said I wanted <laughs> it to do. So the for our studio actually, we keep all of like our important documents and stuff in our Dropbox and are able to access it forever from everywhere, especially since I travel so much. It was a really hard thing to find something that worked the way I wanted it to. That is mm-hmm. a great application. Yeah. Now, Ron, have you used it? Oh, constantly. Yeah. Constantly. Yep. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's, uh, I use it to keep my, you know, my two computers synchronized, all the important files. I use it for the, the iPhone uh, version of it. I will send, you can share folders with friends as well. So, uh, you know, I got back from that, big hiking trip i did in utah and i sent dropbox links to the, the guys i went hiking with so they could all just pull the files have them local and put some of their photos into that same shared folder so that i could grab them as well yeah, uh, yeah. you know there's a i don't I can't remember if you mentioned it but there's you know there's the free version and there's a paid version that gives you more space uh i've just about maxed out my usage of the free amount so i'm pretty close i would probably be buying the paid version pretty soon yeah yeah, I switched to the paid version pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. I think with Im- with images, once you start throwing uh, images on there. Exactly. Right. That's exactly the transition I'm making. Is for a while there, I was just using it for documents. And now that I'm starting to use it for photos, it's like, all right, time to... All right, guys, we've got to wrap, wrap things up here. So uh, quickly, Sarah France, where can, where can people find you if they're looking for you online? Uh, you can find me at sarahfrance.com or whereintheworldisfrance.com. Wonderful. Aaron Mailer, are you still there? Where can people find you? I'm certainly here. You can find me on Twitter at HalfPress and uh, my blog at halfpress.com where I'll put up some of the tilt shift images from the Mayan ruins in Tulum. Excellent. Mr. Ron Brinkman, where are you at? Digitalcomposting.com is my blog. Uh, I'm just getting ready to put up a few photos from some of my wandering around in the last few months. <laughs> And uh, on Twitter, at Ron Brinkman. Excellent. And if you're looking for me, you can find me at frederickvan.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. 